Well, how weird is this? Here I am in an empty auditorium, and there you are in uh, all throughout Winchester and Frederick County and uh, Warren County and Shenandoah County and Clark County and Berkeley County and Hampshire County and all over the place. And um, this is, uh, it is unprecedented, but uh, Fellowship Bible Church family, uh, we're going to uh, continue to uh, worship the Lord and learn of Him and uphold each other in prayer and stay connected and stay communicating to one another and uh, see how God is going to do some uh, awesome things during this time. And uh, we pray for our country, we pray for all these situations uh, around the world and um, you know, God's people are, um, you know, the Church of Jesus Christ is uh, the hope of the world and what awesome opportunities we have to uh, proclaim Him and lift up His name and present the, the love of Jesus uh, in this world. So um, uh, hang in there. We'll, uh, we'll get back together soon. And um, until we do, this is what we're going to do uh, over the next uh, few weeks. Um, I've been, wearing, I've been wearing glasses since I was in uh, junior high school uh, because I, with nearsightedness, I couldn't see the chalkboard and what the teacher was writing. And uh, so I got glasses, and um, things changed. And, of course, I had to make the choice from that point on to see the chalkboard and wear my glasses or, uh, or not see the chalkboard and don't wear my glasses. It was a choice I had to make. But uh, it helped clear things up, uh, seeing um, seen, uh, clearly the chalkboard. Uh, we are, uh, in light of this coronavirus and all the bad news that is uh, Surrounding this uh, this pandemic, the the financial chaos, the seemingly growing fear, the um, just the instability uh, in the world, it is uh, as important as ever that we, as believers in Jesus Christ, see uh, see things properly, uh, that we have the proper lenses on, uh, the lenses of His Word, so we can see clearly uh, what's happening. Um, and specifically, to see things through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is, this is not the first time stuff like this has happened. I mean, my goodness, um, 2009, we had the H1N1 pandemic. And, and uh, um, 1968, we had the Hong Kong flu pandemic went around the world. Uh, Ten years before that, 1958, we had the Asian flu uh, pandemic. Um, and, of course, you've been hearing probably uh, during all this time the, the historical about 100 years ago during um, 1918, the Spanish flu, uh, the serious uh, pandemic in 1918. Uh, and, and history records hundreds and hundreds of these things uh, down through the, the century of time. And now we're, we're facing good old uh, COVID-19 to come and disrupt our lives. Uh, and there's no question this is serious. I mean, when was the last time we ever... Uh, canceled March Madness, uh, for crying out loud. In fact, uh, never in the history of 80-plus uh, years of March Madness. So this is not uh, anything to laugh at. Uh, it is serious. And that's why we need to come and understand that and, and all of life by putting on the lens of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, it helps put things in proper uh, perspective. And there's no place... To get that um, 
proper perspective from the gospel than the book of Romans. Back in January when I started this series on the book of Romans, I mean, who would have thought that we'd be sitting here doing this today with, uh, with a pandemic on our hands around the world? Um, God knew, and I'm really glad that we're in the book of Romans. Uh, I hope you are, are, are too. Um, as we've seen in our study of the book of Romans, the ultimate bad news for humanity has to do with our sin and God's judgment against it. Um, Paul tells us in Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin uh, is death. Uh, and all throughout the Bible, we are reminded of this truth. The opening pages of the Bible, God told Adam, in um, the day you eat of that forbidden fruit, you will surely die. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20 says, the soul that sins will die. Uh, we're reminded throughout uh, the Bible uh, there are consequences to sin, and those consequences are death. And then you go to the New Testament, like Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, and says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So blood had to be shed in order for forgiveness to be um, given. Uh, that was God's plan. A, a holy and righteous God, his holy and righteous character, demanded that sin be paid for. Uh, and here's a key point. There is no such thing as free forgiveness. Uh, it always costs something. It's always costly. Um, it always involves death. And you browse through the history of the Old Testament. You just kind of look through things of the Old Testament. I mentioned uh, um, uh, Adam and Eve. They sinned and, and death took place. Of course, God sacrificed an animal, and he, he clothed, he, he made those skins of animals, and he clothed Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. Um, Abel brought the best sacrifice. It was a blood sacrifice. Uh, Noah and his family, they, they landed on Mount Ararat, and what does Noah do? He offers sacrifices. Uh, when God entered into the, the covenantal promises with Abraham, uh, he did so by sacrificing a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a pigeon. And of course, then you've got the Israelites coming out of Egypt. Uh, they were protected by the angel of death after the sacrifice of a lamb and the blood put on the doorposts. Uh, an entire book uh, is devoted to this whole sacrificing system, and it's the book of Leviticus. King David, he brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And what did he, what, what's he do? He offers a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. His son, Solomon, when he dedicated that magnificent temple of God, Solomon sacrificed 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. You know, someone once said that the, the Old Testament ships sailed on a sea of blood. And, and we see this over and over again. Elijah uh, confronts the prophets of Baal. And what does he do? He offers a sacrifice, uh, dripping with, with water, dripping wet with water. Um, Ezra returns from captivity, rebuilds the temple, and he offers 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and 12 male goats to correspond with the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and on and on and on and on it goes. The Old Testament is a bloody book. Um, blood had to be shed. There is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. But herein 
lies that divine dilemma that we've talked about. I mentioned it last week. The divine dilemma. A God who loves us. He's a God of grace. He's a God of mercy. He loves sinful people, yet he's holy and righteous. And there's that dilemma, that conflict. God said to Adam, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. But God loved Adam and Eve. And so he sacrificed an animal and he, he covered them. Um, you've got Israel. Uh, he loved the nation of Israel. He called them out of, uh, of um, Egypt and, and set his affections on them. But they sinned over and over and over again. And so what does God do? He institutes a sacrificial system by which Israel's sin can be covered. I mentioned Leviticus. Um, it's a bloody book. It's a book about sacrifices. But in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 15 through 17, um, God spells out how this is all done. Let me read it for you. Leviticus 16, 15 through 17. Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bowl, and he will sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. And he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel, because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And thus he shall do for the tent of meeting which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. Verse 17 says, When he goes in to make atonement in the holy place, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out that he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for all the assembly of Israel. And so in that scene, the high priest would go into that special place, the Holy of Holies, and there was the Ark of the Covenant, and there was the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, and it's called the, the mercy seat, and he would take blood, he would splatter it on that mercy seat to make Atonement. The NIV actually says, instead of mercy seat, it's the atonement cover. This was the place where God, the holy God of Israel, would atone for the sins of the people. God required a payment for sin. Now, the sacrifices of the Old Testament were only a temporary fix. Again, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 3 and 4, we read, but in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. It was a reminder because they had to come and do it every year. In fact, they had to come and do it daily. Um, there was the constant daily reminder as the smoke would ascend from the burning altar where those sacrifices were made daily. And then yearly in the, in the Day of Atonement, Year by year by year, there was a constant reminder of sins. But then the writer of Hebrews says this in verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Something better had to happen. Something better had to occur in order for God's love and his holiness to be satisfied. And that's where the book of Romans comes in. Uh, as we've been studying. And I, and I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 3. Uh, we ended up there uh, in about verse uh, 23 and 24 last week. But Romans chapter 3, 
Verse 23 and 24 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And last week we looked at that key word, redemption. It's a word that means to secure one's freedom upon the payment of a price, of a ransom price. When the price is paid, the freedom is given. Jesus came to earth. He paid the ransom price. He left his throne in glory. He set aside those divine privileges, became fully man, fully identifying with our humanity. He was perfect God, yet perfect man. And he came and he died on the cross. Why? To pay the redemption price. In fact, he was the redeeming price. He was the ransom price. And there's no other way to be freed from sin. There's no other way that the penalty of death can be paid than that one payment that was made by Jesus Christ. He was our redeemer. And so we are justified. We can be declared right. We can be acquitted of all our crimes, of all our sin, because of the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. But let's keep reading. So justified is a gift, verse 24, by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God, verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. And this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Now the NIV uses three words for that one word that uh, is here in the New American Standard Version, propitiation. The NIV uses three words, sacrifice of atonement, a propitiation. Now the word redemption is the man word focus. It, it's what happens to man. They are set free because of the payment of, of uh, the ransom price. The word propitiation is the God word term. It's the God word focus. It's what happens to God. You know, we always think of our eternal salvation, that something has to happen to us in order for uh, eternal salvation to take place. Well, something also has to happen to God. We've got to be set free from our sins and forgiven. God has to be satisfied. He has to be propitiated. Uh, and that's what this word propitiation means. It's the Greek word hilasterion. And um, when in the Old Testament, in the, in the Greek translation, the Septuagint, the Greek translation on the Old Testament, when they spoke of the, that lid of the Ark of the Covenant, where the high priest would come in and sprinkle the blood on that covenant, on that, uh, that lid, in the Greek Old Testament, the, the Septuagint, the translation of, um, of, of that word, the mercy seat, was this word, hilasterion, propitiation, the mercy seat. And blood would be splattered on the lid, on the mercy seat. 22 times that word is used, the mercy seat. And God would see the blood on that lid, and he'd be satisfied. Sins would be covered for one more year. Propitiation is a term that describes what Jesus did on the cross. His perfect work fully satisfied the Father. 
the requirement that the holy God required. It satisfied his judgment against sin. It satisfied his righteous character. Because you see, God needed to be satisfied. His character, his righteousness, his holiness demanded it. When Jesus died on the cross, his blood was shed. And that's what it says again in verse 25. God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through him, through Jesus Christ by faith. Jesus died on the cross. His blood was sprinkled. It was shed. And God, the holy, righteous, heavenly Father, saw the blood of his Son. And his wrath was turned from sinners onto his Son, who, and he was judged for our sins placed upon him. But he saw the blood, the atoning blood, and God was satisfied. He was propitiated. And so now God is free to pour out his love, to pour out his mercy. He couldn't do that because our sin was blocking it. it it's like, um, think of God's love and mercy like a, an ocean of water that's all dammed up and it can't, it, can't be, it can't flow to where it needs to go. It's all dammed up because of his holy, righteous character. It's not permitted to pour forth. It is held back by the character of God. But Jesus died on the cross and his, his blood was shed. He redeemed us and the Father was satisfied when the blood was applied. And it, it tore down the dam so that the, the love of God can now flow to undeserving sinners because God was satisfied. Jesus did the perfect work. The Father's wrath was turned and God is now free to tear down that dam and, and allow his love to flow unhindered to a world of lost sinners. The love of God for sinners could not be loosed, could not be set free until that payment price was paid, until his holy righteous character, God's character, was satisfied, until he was propitiated. And that's what Jesus said. He died on the cross, and before he died, he uttered those words, it is finished. God was satisfied. Our sins were dealt with. Amazing love, how can it be, that God would love me. Now we keep reading, verse 26 says this, all of this, all of this was a demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be, God would be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. And so you see, the divine dilemma is now solved. God's character remains intact. He is still a just God because he's dealt with the sin issue. His wrath has been satisfied. Blood was offered because blood was required. He now remains just, but he can also be the justifier, the one who declares unworthy sinners right in his eyes because of the work of Jesus Christ. Um, Paul goes on and he says in verse 27, so where then is boasting? It's excluded. But what kind of law of works? No, it's a law of faith. For we maintain, verse 28, that a man is declared right He's acquitted of all crimes. He's justified by faith 
apart from works of the law? Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, is one. God handled it all. He accomplished it all. Back in verse 25, it was his forbearance that he had passed over sins previously committed. It was as if God took all those sins of the Old Testament, all from Adam and Eve on, all through the Old Testament, all through the gospel accounts, all up until the the crucifixion of Christ, all the sins of those who were following him. They were all covered. They were all kind of put under a tarp. They were all waiting there. When when Jesus was on earth and he was um, um, uh, transfigured on the mountain of transfiguration, you remember in that story there were two Old Testament figures that showed up. If you listened to the, um, to the Sermon uh, Spotlight podcast this last week, we talked a little bit about that. Who were those two people? They were Moses and Elijah, the representative of the law, the representative of the prophets. Moses and Elijah, they were there at the transfiguration, and it says they were talking about the things that were going to take place in Jerusalem. Why? Why were they talking about those things? Because they, they had a vested interest Their sins were not taken away. Their sins were covered. The sins of Moses, the sins of Elijah, the sins of David, and and everyone in the Old Testament. They were under the tarp. They were there. They had been covered. But they had not been taken away until Jesus came. When Jesus came, he paid the ransom price, He shed his blood. God was propitiated. He was satisfied. The mercy seat became Jesus himself. And God now took away all those sins. As far as the east is from the west, the perfect payment was made. And so God who redeems, who has been satisfied, who's been propitiated, becomes the all-embracing God. He can pour out his grace. He can pour out his love. He can pour out his mercy. He can give the free gift of eternal life. And so man's ultimate problem, the ultimate bad news, is taken care of by the ultimate good news of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul Paul wrote in uh, in Romans chapter 1. Because it's the power of God that brings about deliverance, rescue. The ultimate problem, the ultimate bad news is met because of the ultimate good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, let's relate that to the mess we are in today. The gospel and the coronavirus. Um, Every trial, every tribulation we face, every every trouble, every world calamity that we ever come up against must be seen through the lens of the gospel. It must be seen through the lens of the gospel. And our condition of utter helplessness that was solved by the ultimate solution in the gospel of Jesus Christ 
reminds us that everything we face today, everything we face today, we need to also see through the lens of that same gospel message. There's a very important truth that is found throughout God's Word and a truth that we've preached here many times, taught here many times, and that is this truth, that trials and tribulations, suffering and pain, coronaviruses and and financial collapse and, and all the mess of the world are God's chosen means of bringing us into a deeper relationship with himself. It's the means that God uses to bring us to the end of self-dependency so we can be a a God-dependent believer in Jesus Christ. Suffering, like nothing else, exposes the idols of our heart, the idols of, I can do this, we can make this, I can can survive this, I just got to be clever, I just got to be, you know, I got to be first in line at Costco and get all the toilet paper. I mean, I can do this. What suffering does exposes those idols in our lives. It uncovers our trust in God's substitutes and then pushes us once again to transfer our trust upon God himself. The Puritan pastor Richard Baxter once wrote long ago, suffering so unbolts the door of our heart so that the word has easier entrance. Suffering has a way of unlocking, unbolting the door of our heart so that the truth of God can have easier entrance. Is the door of your heart being unbolted because of what's going on in the world? Take courage because God purposely is doing something Uh, so that his word is going to have easier entrance into our life. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, said it this way, We can ignore pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pains. Remember these words of C.S. Lewis? It is his megaphone to arouse a deaf world, his megaphone. And what is God rousing us to hear? What is God arousing us to see? Himself, himself. Randy Elkhorn in his book, The Goodness of God, said it this way. In our times of suffering, God doesn't give answers as much as he gives himself. And he invites us in this time of chaos, in this time of unnerving uncertainties, um, to fellowship with him, to enter into communion with him. Jeremiah the prophet, in chapter 2, verse um, 13, put it this way. God laments it. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, And they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. It's very easy in a a world of chaos. It's very enticing. It's very tempting to, to dig our own cisterns, to figure out life. And by the way, that doesn't mean 
you, you, you live, um, you do stupid things and, and you don't plan well and you don't protect yourself and you, you know, you, you go see your doctors and you, you do all those things if, if need be. But we don't depend on that. Suffering, trials, it's, it's unbolting the door of our heart so that we, we're not going to dig and build our own cisterns that are going to be broken anyway. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, 8 through 10, he said this, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. That's some pretty serious uh, trials that Paul was going through. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope. What a great passage. God's megaphone of pain rouses us to himself, to himself, to trust him rather than ourselves. A microscopic virus has been released into this world that's causing major disruptions, major diseases, death. And it does leave us vulnerable. It does leave us questioning. It does leave us wondering What's tomorrow to bring? Last Sunday, when we were all gathered in this auditorium, I don't think any of us would have thought that we'd be doing what we're doing today. Um, not gathering. Um, the Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 2, So as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, now walk in him. As you received him in that moment of faith, it's time to walk in him, in fellowship with him, in communion with him by faith. We receive him by faith. We walk in him by faith. Um, and, and granted, everything we hear and read and everything sometimes within us shouts for us to make our own way and um, dig our own cisterns. And so we redouble our efforts and we, we try. But folks, this is the time. This is the time to have sweet communion with God. Let him unbolt your, your, your heart. Receive the truth of his word. Receive him. Why is it that God wants us in this place of dependency? so that the truth of the gospel can be lived out in our life, so that we can experience real life. Real life in the midst of chaos, real life in the midst of death. Life is found in him. Martin Luther, the great reformer, once said, Oh, his grace and goodness toward us is so immeasurably great that without great assaults and trials, it really can't be understood. I love what Larry Crabb said in his book, Shattered Dreams. We will not encounter Christ 
as our best friend, as the source of all true goodness, as the one who provides the sweetest pleasures to our souls until we abandon ourselves to him. And full abandonment, real trust, rarely happens until we meet God in the midst of shattered dreams, until in our brokenness we see in him the only and overflowingly sufficient answer to our soul's deepest cry. It's in him. And when the stock market drops and your portfolio is shredded and you, you can't go out and do things and you're wondering if that person who just coughed on you is going to send you to the hospital and maybe to your death, we find the all-sufficiency of Christ. That's what the gospel speaks to us. In the days of the, the great sailing vessels that journeyed across the Atlantic, the story is told of a young sailor on his first ship who was told to climb up the mast and set the sails, and he, um, he did the ultimate um, a dangerous thing that a sailor was not to do. As he climbed up and got up to the top, he looked down. He saw the, the turning of the sea. He got lightheaded. He was about to fall. And someone down below hollered up to him and cried out to another sailor, Look up, son! Look up! And he did. And it spared his life as he was able to continue his work. Today, the Lord Jesus calls us, look up, child, look up. We can spend hours watching the news. We can spend hours worrying about our portfolios of economics and finances. The Apostle Paul is telling us in the book of Romans, the gospel tells us, look up, look up. When Paul wrote those opening words in Romans chapter 1. He quoted from an Old Testament prophet, the prophet Habakkuk. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, Habakkuk wrote, The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Now, it took the prophet Habakkuk a little while to, um, to understand fully what that meant. You see, he wasn't just assaulted by microscopic viruses that had invaded his, uh, his land and, and his body. He was being assaulted by the army of the Babylonians, and they were coming to destroy Judah. It took a while for this prophet to understand what it meant, the just shall live by faith. But at the end of that little book, three chapters, at the end of the book of Habakkuk, he writes this, Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, and though the yield of the olive would fail, and the fields produce no food, and though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord, and I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. And he's made my feet like hinds feet. And he makes me walk on high places. It dawned on Habakkuk. <laughs> That's it. To just live by faith. Faith in a God 
who has provided and solved our greatest and most ultimate problem, our sin. By sending a Redeemer to pay for our sins so that he could be propitiated and satisfied and so that he could now declare acquittal, declare justified, unworthy sinners. God had it all figured out how to, how to tear down the dam of his holy righteous character, of his wrath, so that his love could flow. God had it all figured out. He's got this one figured out too. Because far more important than a coronavirus was our sin. Look up, child. Look up. God's got this covered. God's got it covered. Some people are trying to find peace in words like um, um, test kits. <laughs> They're trying to find hope in things like um, words like um, quarantine or words like don't touch me. Real hope and peace is found in words like redemption and propitiation, justification. In the word gospel. We're not sure what the, then these next days and weeks are going to look like, folks, but uh, Fellowship Bible Church family, let's move forward. Let's keep looking up. Let's trust him. Let's not forget the gospel. Let's have communion these weeks, these months with our God. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much for the privilege you've given us to know you, to have communion with you, and to, um, and to put the, the things that we have learned, the things that... Uh, we, we truly believe in our heart. We can now put them to the test. We can now implement them. We don't have to dig our own cisterns. We can trust you. We don't have to rely on our own imaginations and figuring out things uh, that is so chaotic in the world. We can trust you. We don't have to rely on our investment advisors. We can trust you. And who better to trust than the one who gave us redemption, who was satisfied with the payment of our sins by your Son, who declares us to be right in your eyes. You've given us the gospel. Help us not to forget it in these dark times. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.